Our theme this year is deeper and wider. We want our lives to grow deeper and wider. And we're going to start this year by offering up a series of lessons on how. Let's get practical. But first, let me spell it out a little bit. Deeper equals more joy, more abundance, richer connection with God and with others, wider, more influence, a greater sense of purpose and meaning, stronger legacy. So for shorthand this morning, if you'll indulge me, in today's message, we're going to kind of equate deeper and wider with happiness, because I think it's what we're really after. We all want to be happy, and the key to that, the direction that our lives need to aim in order for that to happen is really this business that we're talking about when we say deeper, wider, that actually grow deeper and wider, we need the right game plan. So our series for the next seven weeks, we're going to call it Game Plan, and that means we need to identify the right habits, plus we need a plan to employ those habits, because without the right habits, we're just going to be walking on the wrong path, and without a plan, our habits will be good intentions, but they'll never be exercised. So what's the game plan? The first habit that we're going to talk about in this series of messages is using resources with wisdom and purpose. This is the first life theme that's going to take our lives deeper and wider, and I'm going to be a little obnoxious at several points this morning, including at the end of today. I'm going to actually give us some real practical how to plan steps, and I'm going to want you to grab two or three or six of those this year as you're uh, dialing into this year. I'm going to be a little obnoxious. I'm warning you in advance. But I'm going to start out by being a little obnoxious and do one of those things that I hate when communicators have me do, but I'm going to have you repeat that after me. I will use my resources with wisdom and purpose this year on three. One, two, three. I will use my resources with wisdom and purpose. And Lord, they meant it. They meant it a whole lot more energetically than they just said that. So the first habit is using resources with wisdom and purpose. How we use our resources is a very big deal. We play occasionally Sellers of Catan in our house. I don't know if any of you know this board game, but it is a board game that is all about resources and how you expend those resources. So if you'll notice this board, the rectangles, those are roads. And the bigger houses-looking things are settlements, and the larger, there's one kind of upper to the right, there's a bigger one that's a, that's a city. And you try to collect settlements and cities, and, and you get points for each of those. And the point of the game is to you know, get the most points. You try to get to 10, and each one of those cities is one point, and each settlement is two points. And to build roads and settlements and cities, you have to collect resources, and you have to use those resources really wisely. You can use them to buy a development card, for instance, or you can use them to buy a road, or you can maybe use it to buy a city, and you have to choose wisely. And outlay your resources in order to win the game because the use of your resources in Sellers of Catan is absolutely critical and it is also true of life. How we use our resources is critically important. We're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning. You need to know this. It was written in the 70s AD and it's shocking because the Apostle Paul wrote it to Northern Virginians. I mean, this passage is written to us as much as any passage in the New Testament. And we're going to learn something critical this morning about using resources. But as a big picture observation to begin with, we're going to say that according to verse 9 in the passage, and you'll see it in a second, according to verse 9 of the passage that we're going to read, the wrong use of resources can be deadly. This is not a small thing. And according to verse 19, the right use of resources can be profoundly life-giving. So I want you to actually look at this passage this morning. We've got it at mygateway.life. So if you'd go there and go to the sermon card, you can see the passage. 
Or if you've got a Bible, I invite you to look with me. And in just a second, not to start out with, but in just a second, we're going to go old school. And I'm going to have you stand out of reverence for God's Word. But just keep your seat right now and let me start reading this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm beginning with verse 3. This is amazing. Remember, he's got Northern Virginians in mind. You'll see it. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, he says, Paul's writing to his young charge, Timothy, and to Northern Virginians, and he's starting out talking about false teachers. Teachers got this completely wrong idea. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, look, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant frictions among people who are depraved in mind, depraved of the truth. Look at this. Imagining, this is what they're encouraging in their listeners and what their listeners are grabbing onto, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. All right, let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word here for the rest of this passage. Check this out. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For Northern Virginians, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some of you Northern Virginians have wandered away from the faith and pierced yourselves with many pangs. But as for you Northern Virginians, flee these things. Look at what he says as over against this love of money thing. We're not going to have time to talk about this middle paragraph, but it's rich. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unsustained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those rich northern Virginians in this present age, that's in the original, <laughs> charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, check this out, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything, purpose statement, to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You may be seated. Here's how it works. The right use of resources is critical in determining the condition of our connection to God, and the condition of our connection with God will determine how deep and wide our lives grow. Again, as Paul contends, the wrong use of our resources can be deadly, the right use of our resources, the wise use of our resources can be life-giving. So I want to start out with an unconventional belief statement that we borrowed from John Piper in his book, Desiring God. I think Piper is right when he says this, listen, money is the currency of Christian hedonism. All right, this obviously needs an explanation. The passage begins with Paul warning Timothy about these false teachers. They were creating the desire in their followers to use their connection to God to get rich somehow. 
So evidently, these false teachers were stirring up pointless controversies with argumentative and quarrelsome teachings. And they may have even been encouraging their followers to believe, you know, that they alone had the real truth with our deep controversial teachings. Worst of all, they were encouraging their followers to believe that godliness is a means to financial gain. This is probably a way for these teachers to say something like, hey, you guys should really be paying me for my deep teaching because that's what God wants you to do and it's what God wants from me. He wants to bless me. You know, in certain settings, the belief that godliness can be a means to financial gain has the appearance of truth. I grew up in a time and place when you had to go to the right church if you wanted to be successful in business. I grew up in a small town in South Carolina in the 1890s. And quite literally, the appearance of godliness could lead to a kind of personal gain. You had to be rightly connected. As you may know, there are teachers today that place a dangerous emphasis on God's desire to bless us. They create exactly this expectation that if you get it right with God, then he's bound to bless you financially. In other words, godliness is a means to financial blessing. But Paul rejects this kind of thinking utterly. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. Don't snooze on this. As we read through the passage, we can't help but notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, godliness is not a means to financial gain because Christians are the kind of people who aren't interested in such things. Christians do things without regard for their own gain. In fact, we're the kind of people who aren't interested in happiness. We're all about sacrifice. He doesn't say that. This is what we might expect him to say. This is what we sometimes believe God wants us to think. This is not what God tells us here. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal, he was absolutely right when he observed this. I'm going to quote him. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but toward this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What? Wait. Aren't we as Christians supposed to be people who aren't interested in our own gain, in our own happiness? Again, surprisingly, this is not what God says. I believe God acknowledges our desire for happiness. I believe he created our desire. But what he does is he offers us a deeper, richer kind of happiness. He offers us what John Piper calls Christian hedonism, the real thing. In other words, there is a Christian way of pursuing my happiness. The desire for my life to be richer and fuller and happier. In other words... The desire to go deeper in my experience of joy and abundance. The desire to have my influence expand wider and wider. God does not denounce this desire. In fact, he spells that out for us how to get there. In short, Paul offers up an argument for Christian hedonism. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, he says, but there's something much better. There is a truly great gain when true godliness is matched with contentment. Piper's absolutely right when he says... I'm going to quote again, and I want you to see it. It's not only permitted, but commanded by God that we pursue our full and lasting pleasure. And that all the evils in the world come not because, listen to this, not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak 
that we settle for fleeting pleasures that do not satisfy our deepest souls, but in the end destroy them. Could it actually be that we don't experience lives that grow deeper and wider because our desires are not strong enough? If our resources are the currency of Christian hedonism, it means that we can use our resources to secure our truest joy and happiness instead of using our resources to secure our ruin. This is, by the way, true of all our resources, as we said, but it is supremely true of money. That's why money is the chief topic of this passage. Paul zeroes in on money here because he knows that it may be the chief of all resources. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart is. So how? What do we do to use our resources to grow lives that are deeper and wider? Our time, our energy, our creativity, most especially our money. How do we use them to secure our happiness? We can organize Paul's comments into two actionable ideas for us, and I want you to remember these. And as I said at the end, I'm going to give you some practical steps that I want you to grab onto two or three or six of them this year. We need our spirituality this year to be more muscular, don't we? We need to get off our rear ends. And today is that. It's a call to action for us. So I'm going to give you two actionable ideas. First, the first thing we've got to do is to reject the notion that our happiness can be won through financial gain. We have to actively reject that. When we begin to make decisions or thoughts or our attitudes creep into us that are based on this assumption, we reject it. We stand against it. We cannot buy lives that are deeper and wider. This is a hard notion for us to reject, Northern Virginians. The idea that happiness comes through financial gain is deeply ingrained in our culture. And we are deeply committed to it. We are the kind of people who are deeply committed to the idea that our happiness comes from financial gain. For some of us, our commitment to that assumption is how we ended up in the suburbs. I read a a surprising and a really interesting article not long ago. It's from 2012. It was in the Atlantic magazine. And the author began, he actually, by the way, this author makes essentially the same point that the Apostle Paul makes, or one of the points the Apostle Paul makes. He began by noting how over the past 100 years, speaking primarily about the United States, how we've often turned yesterday's luxury products into today's necessities. And then he draws a fascinating conclusion. Listen to these stats. In 1900, less than 10% of families owned a stove or had access to electricities or phones. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or color TV. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the internet. Some of you are old enough to remember that period. The article concluded by saying this, Today, at least 90% of all households in the country have a stove, electricity, a car, a refrigerator, clothes washer, air conditioning, color TV, microwave, and cell phone. He goes on. These products may make our lives better. 
I suppose it could be argued that they make us happier. But they are, it seems, never enough. The article argues that the primary effect of all of this is that we have simply created a deeper desire for more. In other words, we have exaggerated our dissatisfaction. This is why Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because enough is never enough. He gets really practical then, doesn't he? He knows we need convincing. So he gives us, through this passage, three reasons why we should reject the belief that our happiness can be won through financial gain. Three reasons why this is a, this is a bad idea. Reason number one, as Billy Graham once said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, take nothing out of it. So by definition, it's a dumb idea. It's pointless to hold on to this as the object of our desire. Point number two, making financial gain our goal leads in a really bad direction. It is a silly notion. Verse 9 tells us it plunges us into ruin and destruction. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham recounted a story that demonstrated how, you know, apart from God, we don't gain anything from investing our resources. He said this, and I'm going to quote Billy Graham. Some years ago, Ruth, Ruth is his wife. Some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. I am the most miserable man in the world, he said. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Graham goes on. Then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of a local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, and he too was 75. A widower. He spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. Yet he was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. And he said, I don't have two pounds to my name, but with a smile, I am the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham related how he asked his wife Ruth after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She didn't have to reply because they both knew the answer. It's a silly notion. Third reason we should reject this notion. Because money is so uncertain, he says in verse 17. Interesting, he gives this advice to us in particular. You remember he addressed it in the original, he addressed this to Northern Virginians. He said, as for those rich Northern Virginians in this present age, evidently we in particular are prone to forgetting that money is uncertain. It's not something that we can build our lives on. Now remember, what we're rejecting is the belief that our truest happiness can be secured through financial gain. Paul tells Timothy to flee this kind of thinking. We are not rejecting money. We are rejecting money as a goal. I wish I had a highlight, and I wish I had a way to underscore and bold this this morning, especially for those of you who are young families. Because a part of what you're doing is building your life. You're building your career, and it's good to do so. But you cannot make Money, your goal, it will lead to ruin and destruction. Great personal gain is possible for us, and we are right to desire it. I'm going to say that again, but I need to add the follow-on sentence, don't I? 
Great personal gain is possible for us, and we are right to desire it. But when we hear per great personal gain, we're, we're wired to think more money. But great personal gain comes through godliness with contentment. So first of all, we have to reject the idea that our happiness can be won through financial gain. We have to battle that idea. It is in the soup that we were cooked in. Secondly, if we want to use our resources to secure our truest happiness, we will use our resources to be generous and to do good deeds. That's simple. Now, look at this. He begins this section by giving us the negative, doesn't he? He says, don't be arrogant, which is easy to do when you're wealthy. He says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is easy to do when you have a lot of it, because it leads you in the wrong direction. Professor Kathleen Bose from the University of Minnesota's Carlston School of Management conducted a series of long-term studies on the attitudes that accompany wealth. This is fascinating. I want you to listen to some of her conclusions. I'm going to quote the study now. A mounting body of research is showing wealth can actually change how we think and behave. For example, rich people have a harder time connecting with others. They tend to show less empathy. They are less charitable, and they are less likely to help someone in trouble. They are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. She concludes, quote, money, in other words, changes who you are. One of the interesting features of this study is they used a research technique known as priming. And they led people to believe that they were going to be receiving a large sum of money, which is cruel. Then they found that even the mere suggestion of getting more money made people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely, far more likely, to support statements like, quote, some groups of people are simply inferior to others. People were more likely to support that statement just by the suggestion that they were going to receive a large amount of money. After giving us the negative, Paul gives us the positive. So look at the end of verse 17. He says, instead, put your hope in God, who provides us with everything, again, purpose statement, to enjoy, and then comes the application, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and be ready to share. So simply put, if we want to use our resources to secure our truest happiness, we will be generous and we will do good works. All right. Look, we can use our resources in a variety of ways. We know this. We can use our resources to pursue pleasure. And it sometimes works temporarily. Or we can use our resources to build maximum comfort and convenience for ourselves. And that sometimes works temporarily. But if we want to be happy, if we want to find our truest satisfaction, if we want our lives to expand wider and deeper, we will use our resources with wisdom and purpose. And this will mean first, rejecting the idea that our happiness can be secured through financial gain. And secondly, we'll use our resources to be generous and to do good deeds. And all God's people said. So one more little note. In a really interesting way, Jesus Christ is central to this whole drama, right? This is especially true of verses 11 through 16 that we didn't have time to go over. But because Jesus Christ has made life available to us, real life, then we don't have to spend all our energy pursuing it in the wrong places. We can pursue real life, real depth, and in real height, real, real happiness, in our connection with God, because Jesus Christ has made that possible. Christ is enough. So let's resolve this year to use our resources to secure our truest and highest happiness.
All right. So in conclusion, I want to offer eight obnoxious and very practical, let's do this. And I want us to grab two or three or six of these this year. And I want us to do them. Eight practical steps for us in helping us use our resources with wisdom and purpose. Step number one, start building a tithing habit. So tithe is the analogy, figure, used in the Old Testament. It literally means a tenth. The Old Testament is talked about many times. In the New Testament, they don't denounce it, they kind of assume it. And because of that, Diane and I, my wife is Diane, Diane and I have made this our habit over our lives. So uh, Diane and I believe that we should tithe to godly causes. So we give around a tenth, usually a little over a tenth of our income to Gateway every year. So that means if your family makes $120,000, tenth is easy. You take a zero off. That's $12,000 over the course of a year. Whatever your income is, what we do is we take a zero off the end and we try to give that or more to Gateway. And then beyond that, there are some causes that we like to give to. Some of them are not necessarily Christian. We supported a child overseas for years. Some of you have done this through compassion. And then, you know, your children grow up and they go to college and they want to take a mission trip during the summer and they think Pastor Ed's got to give me money. So I get letters from your children and I have to support them on their mission trip. So that happens several times a year. We give to those kinds of things because we believe that that's what God wants us to do. That's a first step. That's a starting point for us in using our resources with wisdom and purpose. And God has blessed that over the years. Start building a tithing habit in your life. Now, you're a young family and you just bought your townhome or you've just moved into your single-family home, and your mortgage is... I know your mortgage. So we can't do that. We'll do that, Ed, when we can get our lives together. You need to consider that maybe you can't get your lives together unless you do that first. Second practical suggestion, ask God to help identify a new generosity habit this year, this year for you. Don't do two unless you've done one. But there are some of you who have done number one in your life, and you've been faithful to God. Thank you. That's stupid for me to say thank you. It's, you know, you're just doing what God has called you to do. So well done, good and faithful servant. But I want to encourage you in number two. Several years ago here at Gateway, I don't remember if this was three years ago or eight years ago, but some time ago, somebody came up to me on a Sunday and said, listen, Ed, I don't remember who this was, and I never followed up with them, so I don't tell me later whoever you were, because I don't know if it was successful. But I thought it was a great idea. Came to me and said, I've, I've got, the Lord has laid something on my heart. I'm going to try something this year. Okay, I'm going to bring $150 to church once a month in cash, and I'm just going to invite a bunch of people out to lunch, and I'm paying. I wanted to be generous. It's also you know, a good way for me to get to know people, especially new people. So I want you to you know, help me. I remember what it is, first or second Sunday a month, just send people over to me. I'm, I'm buying. I thought that was a great idea. So do that for your neighborhood somehow. Or if you've got kids in elementary school, do it for your, the classroom or the, your elementary teacher or do it here at Gateway. Ask God to help you identify some new generosity habit this year and do it. Just give stuff away. Give it to me if you don't want it. Three, read a time management book this year. For most of us, 
This is our most hard-pressed resource. You've done this before. You've read articles or you've read a book. Obviously, you need to do it again. So maybe, you know, your favorite one, reread this year and find another layer that you can apply to your life. There's always the, the classic seven habits of highly effective people. I want to recommend another one to you. Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. It's an old one, but it's a great resource. Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. It'll just help you order, order your life and order your time. So read a time management book this year. Fourth, read an inspiring biography. And I'm going to encourage you to do it maybe monthly. My kids have turned me on to Audible, and I subscribe to Audible. And so what I do is I just download these things, and I listen to them. I live in Ashburn. It takes me 15 minutes to get here. So 15 minutes here, 15 minutes home, and I'm getting through a biography every month. And, you know, I have read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've read Hamilton, and I've read Benjamin Franklin, and I want to encourage you to read autobiographies, but read the Billy Graham Just As I Am, read inspiring biographies. It will change your perspective on your day, on your life. Fifth, take a personal three-day retreat. Seriously, I'm talking to you. Take a personal three-day retreat. Had a mother of young children say to me afterwards, when am I supposed to do that? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know how for those of you who are mothers of young children, to do this. Maybe you do one through four, but when you can, take a personal three, and I made up three, but you need some time to decompress. You need to get away from your cell phone. Some of you just got hives, but you need to get away from your cell phone and decompress. So take some time, go somewhere. Don't say in the house because the kids are going to run around and drive you nuts. Take a personal three-day retreat this year. You don't need any more instruction than that. You just give God space, and he'll do his thing. Six, fast from screens for a week. The ones of you who broke out in hives just fainted. But take a week, sometime this year, and no, no television, no Netflix, away from your cell phone. Only use your computer if, if you're at work and you need to use Word or Excel. No Facebook, just fast for a week from screens. And unplug. You'll feel better afterwards. And you'll feel more connected to your own resources and your own time. Seven, consider going on one of our mission trips. So 96.7 of you just let that fly past you. That's not for me. Stop! Go on one of our mission trips this summer. Sign up. It will change your perspective. Get out of Northern Virginia and see how the rest of the world lives. And I don't mean Disney World. Eight, Volunteer with the kids' ministry. We need you. It's great. It's a great exercise, and it's your children. So volunteer for the kids' ministry at Gateway. It's a great way to serve. Volunteer for the kids' ministry at Gateway. He paused for dramatic effect. Okay, two bonus suggestions. Number one, if you have a good idea about how to build the wise use of resources, and some of you have practiced some of these things in the past, you have something that worked for you, you're going to try it again this year, awesome. Share it with us on our Facebook group. So share your idea. The more the merrier. Second bonus idea, do the devotional exercise. I'm going to create a devotional exercise for every one of these sermons during this series, during the game plan series. Sometimes they'll be based on the passage that I'm preaching on Sunday morning. Sometimes they won't be. So this week, based on this passage, this week is based on a passage from Malachi. 
So I want you to do the devotional exercise. There are hard copies or paper copies out on the welcome desk. Grab one or it's at mygateway.life. So go to it and take 40 minutes sometime this week. You can do that. Take 40 minutes sometime this week and do the devotional exercise. At the end of it, there's a space created for you to interact with your own generosity goal. So whatever your generous goal is this year, you know, write that out and put it in. And if you get 90% there by the end of the year, you, your life will be richer and you'll be deeper and wider. If you just do this, let's use our resources with wisdom and purpose this year. Let's pray. Lord, this is one of those life themes that we don't ever get to the end of. We don't ever get figured out completely. You have been so generous to us. We saw again a few weeks ago, we are once again the wealthiest county in America. I mean, Lord, the places that we live, the time that Paul wrote this to Timothy, kings did not live that well. And we forget. And when we do, our resources use us. Our schedules are out of control. Our money is out of control. God, help us to exercise discipline. Help us to implement a game plan that will enable us to secure our truest satisfaction, our truest happiness. Empower us to use our resources with wisdom and purpose, not randomly and haphazardly, not for the temporary pursuit of pleasure or not to maximize our comfort and convenience for right now but investing in generosity and good deeds, knowing, Lord, that we're doing it selfishly because we want more of you. We want more of life. We want more depth. We want more width. So speak to us. Still our hearts. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we use music here at Gateway often because music is the language of the heart. And uh, we're going to sing an older song now. Some of you will know it. It's an older chorus. It's called Enough. And I want us to use this as a little bit of a declaration of faith. I want you thinking as you're singing this, I want you connecting mind, heart, and will to rejecting the notion that my truest happiness, the real deal, can be gained through, can be won through financial gain. We're rejecting that. And we're grabbing on to the idea that, man, I want good stuff. I want the good stuff. And so to get there, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to do good things. Because Christ is enough. And the more I have of him, the more I have of what, it, what I really want. And, and he's going to give me godliness with contentment. And, and, and that's where true personal gain is and and my avenue there is generosity and good deeds so here you go so I want you thinking that while we sing this song and the choir let's make this a real declaration so stand with us if you would and let's sing this with joy
started the chorus. All of you, sing this with Drew. More than enough for me.
Father, we are so grateful that you are more than enough. Thank you for your generosity, Father. Thank you for your mercy that's new every morning. Pray that you would let the words that we've heard this morning sink into our hearts and take root and grow this week, this year. Make us more like you. As we gather our offering now, Father, would you please bless it and use it to fuel the work of your kingdom here on earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day. Go in peace.